Joe Jerome's legal interests began with the West Wing, so how did, how did privacy law become his thing? Joe started following news about drones, and he became interested in privacy after U.S. v. Jones. So uh, happy to have Joe Jerome on today's podcast. He's the public policy manager with Reality Labs at Meta, and uh, welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks. Uh, as I was saying in our pre-show, that that rhyme is like good enough to be my LinkedIn bio, and so I might actually be using that. <laughs> Appreciate it. So uh, we'll start from the beginning. You grew up also in the Midwest, like me. You grew up in Iowa, and uh, as a kid, you were watching The West Wing. So talk about just growing up uh, in Iowa and your first interest uh, in in maybe in, in law there. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's a really great question. It's 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 fun to sort of get back to what I what I was as a child. So you know, I was I literally grew up in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa. Um, so you know, heard coyotes at night. My friends were far away. Like until I got a car, I was dependent on my parents to do anything. Uh, and so you know, I I was sort of a lonely kid. Um, I, as a result, got really focused in school. Uh, like I think a lot of people who go to law school, you know, one of those teacher's pet straight A students. Um, I come from a family of doctors and, you know, science and blood always made me squeamish. And so from a pretty early age, I just sort of got in my head that, oh, I'm going to go to law school. Um, you know, I did mock trial, uh, debate team, all the sorts of things that I thought were like well suited to prepare me for law school. Um, and so that was always in the back of my mind. Um, I don't think it was well justified. It did help, as you point out, like I'm watching West Wing and almost everybody on West Wing was a lawyer and I'm like, all right, that's all cool. I can do that. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I graduated from high school and I was like, well, I'm going to go to college. I'll study political science. And it was all with this idea that at some point I'd go to law school. Interesting. So before we get to that, you do any uh, high school jobs there? Uh, no, I was a complete spoiled brat. Although in my defense, as I said, like until I had a car, there was no way for me to really have a job. I mean, I, I think so, so, you know, I, I've sort of made my parents go insane because I had extracurricular activities and they were having to drive into town to pick me up. Um, I, so, uh, you know, on one hand, I, you know, I wasn't actually itching to get a job, but on the other, I'm not entirely sure how I would have gotten one. Um, yeah. What types of uh, extracurricular activities did you do, if you can remember back then? Oh, yes. Yeah. So like I said, um, I was on the debate team. Um, I actually, I have my, I have my, one of my gavels still in my apartment right here uh, for winning a, a competition. Um, I, you know, I was always doing mock trial, although our mock trial team was never all that good. We would get out of the, the district round and go to state, which would at least, you know, give us a, a weekend you know, vacation out of, out of, out of school. Um, but we would get destroyed by, you know, better teams in the state. Uh, yeah. I did a laundry list of, of really like nerdy stuff like model UN, um, you know, part of the, I think another reason that I was really interested in law school or just, you know, I, I knew that I was going to do more education was I, I really enjoyed writing. So, I, you know, I was on newspaper and yearbook and really enjoyed just writing everything from news to opinions to sort of features um, and profiles of folks. Uh, so that, yeah, that was my high school experience. All right, great. So let's get uh, into college here. So you went to the to the East Coast to, to, to Boston University. Yeah, go and, Terriers. Uh, talk about, 
talk about that. Talk about, uh, I guess, how you ended up there and and uh, what you did in school uh, at, at BU. Yeah. Um, so I I knew pretty early, pretty like when I started looking for colleges, I was pretty committed to not being anywhere. I wanted to go away from home. Um, I was just one of those people that was done with the Midwest, did not want to go to the state party school, um, looked at basic, I, you know, I remember looking at universities and sending ap- applications to basically every school that was not just on the coast. It wasn't that I just wanted to be some East Coast elitist, although I've, I've embraced that mantra. Um, but I, you know, I was interested in places like Tulane and USC, any, like basically any place that was as far from Iowa as possible. And if you know where Iowa is, it's in the center of the country. So it's anywhere on the, you know, on the, the border of the country. Um, I, you know, I ultimately visited, uh, Boston as part of a journalism competition uh, when I was a senior and really loved the town. I mean, just the history. Uh, it was, you know, I, you know, I say I'm from Iowa. I was very much a homebody for the first 18 years of my life. And so just didn't really experience big cities. And Boston is hardly a big city, but to me, it was like, oh, there's skyscrapers here. There's culture, yeah, there's history. Culture. Um, and so, you know, I, I looked seriously toward applying to a lot of schools there. And view, I mean, BU is sort of an, an, I shouldn't say this about them, they're sort of, a, it's like they're, they were a name brand school for a long time, people, were, and people still do confuse them with Boston College, because Boston College has a, has a football team, um, but BU was in a city I like, they offered me a, a you know, a really nice scholarship package, which, which was really useful, um, and I thought it was a good opportunity to, to get out of the state of Iowa, I mean, it was a, uh, it was a it was a culture shock for me. Um, you know, we can talk about what college was like, but I think college for a lot of people can be just sort of tough for all sorts of reasons. Um, it, when I when I went to BU, I you know I was I started as one of these undeclared folks. I leaned toward political science pretty quickly. Um, I ultimately I, I switched majors. I actually created my own major at BU. Um, and, and part of this was just because I was trying to avoid a particular political science class that I thought was terrible. By the time I graduated, they actually didn't make it a requirement anymore. But I was I had good enough grades to go make my own major and didn't want to take this class. And so um, made my own major, which we can talk about, but it was really like me just studying random stuff about the Roman Empire. Fascinating. You know, what about some of those uh, like uh, the culture shock? Talk about that a little being from Iowa. In, uh, in Boston, what what, uh, what were some of those challenges? So I already said I was spoiled. I'm also an only child. So I went from being this spoiled only child. Honestly, seriously, my parents live in the middle of a cornfield. That was my the first 18 years of my life to suddenly being in a dorm with a, with another person who at least I, I, I think, you know, I for a long time I was blaming my roommates, but I think I'm probably pretty difficult to live with. But, you know, I had just like, roommate issues they either like to party too much or um had way too many girlfriends if you know what i mean and i'm sitting here just trying to read books and and figure out what my life is like um so you know that was tough uh in addition i i made one of the foolish mistakes of like having a long distance relationship with a high school girlfriend that almost never ends well for folks i think um i'd love to be proven wrong so that created some some angst and anxiety early on in my college years and then you know later on throughout college i again this is, leads me to law school and whether this was fate or just the the, the path of least resistance i didn't really know what i was going to do with myself and so I, you know i i think i think the real 
the real challenge that, and something I'm very appreciative of now that I'm sort of midway through my career almost is, you know, I, I grew up, I went to college. It was all, for me, it was all just about get, like, getting grades to go to the next school to get the next thing. And I, if I could go back in time, I would probably do spend more time thinking about what I actually wanted to do and achieve and, and, and work on as opposed to just being so focused on academics. That's a wide ranging answer. I don't know if that even answered mm -hmm. your question. Yeah, no, it did. It did. It was good. Yeah, it, and, and some. So uh, I, I'm curious, did, did you um, do any kind of uh, internships, any kind of uh, work there at, at BU? Uh, yeah, I, um, oh, I did a lot. I mean, I did a lot of random stuff that really wasn't as focused as it should have been. Um, in retrospect, I should have done something like, you know, intern with a congressional office or something that that probably would have made more sense. Uh, instead, I, I really sort of doubled and tripled down on sort of literary stuff. I was I was the editor in chief of a of a of a journal that um, one of the, the schools within Boston University put out. Um, I was a writing tutor um, with the school. I also worked as an assistant for um, a literary magazine, uh, News from the Republic of Letters, which was edited by um, Keith Botsford, who was a, ended up being a really awesome academic mentor of mine. He, he recently passed away, but uh, he was also just a really interesting guy. Um, what else did I, I, you know, I did a lot of random internships. I, I, and I can't remember them now, which is sad. I, you know, I did some graphic design work and web design for um, a Boston-based nonprofit. Although now I can't recall what that was. Um, yeah. Oh, man. It's, it's sad to realize that that stuff's all faded away now. Interesting. So, so did you spend any time in between uh, undergrad and, and law school? Did you go straight to, to NYU? No, I, uh, I spent a, I, I, I did a couple of years of like, being out in the wilderness. And I, I again, I feel like I, I, I did things because I thought that this was all part of the path to law school and it was maybe not the best idea. So um, I got a job after college working for a small law firm in Boston. Um, it was basically a bunch of solo practitioners that you know shared a paralegal who was me. Um, so I got, I got exposure to a lot of criminal defense, a lot of trust in the state's work, a lot of family law where you, you know, would see that people would fight over 10 like angry angry divorcing couples would fight over 10 cents and and spend thousands of dollars in legal fees to fight over those 10 cents um but yeah i, I spent a couple of years working for this small firm basically just doing pleadings a lot of administrative work um i mean obviously that set me up for law school what's interesting looking back on it is i don't think i actually enjoyed much of the legal work per se which is why i'm I was always very now looking back i'm very confused that i continued to commit to going to law school interesting now looking back would you say was it worth it going to law school i mean i guess we'll get into your experience uh, later but Ooh. would you say it was worth it that's the $64,000 question. And when you say worth it, you know, I think that ultimately is that like intellectually worth it? Was it professionally yeah, just, worth uh, it? Was it financially the, yeah, all worth it? Um, Finan <laughs> all of it combined. So I, I'm in a better place now, but I, and we can talk about this. I actually, I really, really did not enjoy law school and I regretted it for a long time. Um, you know, some of my friends and mentors will remind me or suggest that, you know, I, I am where I am today because of law school and I, I benefited from, you know, that education. 
I, you know, I like to be stubborn and argue that I think I think I could get to where I was without law school. Um, might have been harder, might have been a different path. Um, but certainly, I think, you know, if you look at my career, it's all DC based stuff. Um, and, you know, you can do that in DC without a law degree. A law degree tends to be sort of a credentialing exercise. And so you have a lot of people in jobs in Washington, D.C. that don't do legal jobs, in, including my many of my own, um, but have a law degree. So uh, I'm not answering your question. And I think that's because I'm, I'm still I'm still undecided. Or even if I want to say it's worth it, um, it comes with huge asterisks, caveats and resistance on my part. Yeah. Now, what about the fact, you know, you said at the beginning there that you sort of went for the wrong reasons. You saw the the, the West Wing as a kid. Yeah, that's the wrong reason. Well, you know, yeah, I, I'm saying, did that change? Were you sort of there for the right reasons later on? Sometimes you get into something for the wrong reasons, but then later, you know, you develop a, a taste for it. No, I, no I, think, is... I think my answer is no. Uh I think you know, I think people fall into things. I think our brains have a great capacity to rationalize our, our histories to make sense of our present. And so I can say now, oh, you know, these things I did in law school all set me up for what I'm doing now. But I think that's sort of a, like an after the fact rationalization. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I, it's interesting. We haven't even gotten to like the privacy field, but I think the privacy field collects all sorts of random people. And, and, and so it doesn't surprise me that I ended up in privacy because when I went to law school, I, you know, again, I went there because I was sort of inspired by the West Wing. That is not the right reason to go to law school. I now, you know, now when I'm telling people to go to law school, it's like, do you want to be a public defender? Do you want to be a prosecutor? If you want to do those two things, definitely go to law school. Do you want to set yourself about, up? You know, that's a privacy podcast. What about, what about privacy law? Oh, yeah. Well, it, uh, well, I mean, private. So, private. Well, we, we should. What, what's your question about privacy law? I mean, my question is, is it worth it to go to law school? You have folks listening and maybe. Oh, that's deciding whether or not to do it. Ah, uh, okay. It... That's a better question. And I, I think the answer is probably yes. And I think that's also unfortunate. Um, you know, I, I you know, I think you you've had other folks on your on your podcast, like, you know, Angelique Carson and others who have, you know, they've done some public speaking and some thinking about how hard it can be to break into privacy and like what are the credentials necessary to get into privacy. And again, there are plenty of privacy jobs that don't require law degrees, but it tends to be an easier path in. Um, you said, it, you know, oftentimes, whether it's compliance, whether it's public policy, whether it's, you know, actual legal counseling, you are doing things on the back of privacy laws. And so that I think gives lawyers a, a, a step up, even if it's unfair. Um, and I also think, you know, there's a lot happening in privacy law, however we want to define that, privacy, data protection, um, you know, mm -hmm. things that are, I think, you know, intersect with this, whether that's consumer protection, safety laws. Um, certainly we're having really interesting conversations about the role of digital civil rights. Um, those are all things that I think you can benefit from if you can get legal, you get exposure to that in law school. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, you did some international experience uh, in Switzerland, right? Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's great that this is like a privacy podcast. You're making me go down memory lane and realize all the non-privacy stuff that I did. Uh, I was really That's fortunate. Part of the journey. So yeah, I, I was really fortunate to um, basically do this. It was like a 
international and human rights fellowship while I was at um, NYU that came with the ability to do an internship at the United Nations in Geneva, which was a, a really cool experience. It was also eye-opening. Um, and I, <laughs> I should be careful what I say here, but it was a lot of really very intelligent international lawyers that were working on like, how do we codify international law? I, and a lot of that would just be very, it, it, it boiled down to them working on really lengthy and nuanced and technical legal position papers on and the state of international law and then really long afternoon coffees where they would discuss things. Um, and so I was I was struck by by the slow pace of it all, which makes sense if you study international law in any way. It's you know it's a lot. It's really is a lot of dog eat dog and um, you know power politics, realpolitik, and there's there's plenty of people who say that international law you know they they'll put quotes around it and suggest it doesn't really exist. And, and I see some truth to that because it's it's a it's a really it's a really slow process. Um, and even if you know you have law, oftentimes that law is only as good as sort of the the guns at the end of the sticks of the countries that are supporting that law or you know their economic you know interests. I'm not sure how much you work with uh, data you know data transfer law oh. nowadays, but do you feel that that time in Switzerland do you see some parallels? Or? <laughs> Well said. Um, so I, I have been fortunate to not have to not have to touch on data transfers much at all in my career. It's always something I sort of look at, and the amount of energy and mental cycles being spent on it um, have, have always made me realize I want to stay far, far away from it. Um, and yeah, I think I think there's some. I think there's. I think there actually is an interesting parallel there, um, because you have. I mean, everything is politics. But you really have, when we're talking about data transfers, there is this underlying layer of just politics. And I think it's economic politics between different countries and economic interests. Um, and you have on top of that, I think also just like language differences. I mean, one of the other big, one of the really interesting things of working at the UN is you realize like, even though we've got like, if we, even if we say like English or, or French or Spanish are, are common languages that diplomats speak around the world, um, I think it still wires our brains in, in different ways and mean, you know, it means that, you know, idioms, certain expressions are really lost in translation. And I think, I think you see a lot of that in some of the, you know, ongoing debates around the world about, about privacy type stuff, like it, whether, whether other countries in the world even really refer to it as privacy, or is it data protection, or is it data sovereignty, right. or is it, you know, all of those other terms um, are, are cluster around the same type of concept but they come from very different places yeah yeah interesting now moving uh back to the career path so after law school uh you say that you you spend some time sleeping on uh, your friend's hardwood floor and you know looking for a job talk about just that that period uh, of your life and and what you did then um <laughs> yeah so real talk i graduate in it again, being on this podcast makes me realize that I'm now more than 10 years into a legal career, which is terrifying. So thank you for that. Um, but I, I graduated from law school in 2011, um, which was in the middle of sort of the, the Great Recession. I did not have a job, um, which is terrifying when you 
graduate from law school with huge amounts of debt. You don't know what you want to do. Add on top of that, like I went to NYU and, you know, NYU really sets up a lot of folks to work in corporate law in New York City, which I, I didn't didn't really want to do. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't really like being in New York. I didn't really like the idea of being a corporate lawyer. Um, again, I still had this like image in my mind of being a West Wing type guy. And, but how do you do that? And this is where, you know, you mentioned earlier, like what, what sort of internships I do in college. I, I kick myself that I didn't do any sort of congressional internship because if you've ever been involved in DC, it, you know, it's, you, you start at the bottom um, and it's very hard to work your way up. And once you start at the bottom, you can move pretty quickly, but having that like lower rung experience is invaluable. And instead I show up with this, you know, high priced law degree in DC and like, what do I have to show for it? Um, you know, mm -hmm. I brought like, I brought like one pr probably ill-fitting suit. Um, and at, at that point in time, and it, it's, it's still sort of, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad life has gone the right way for me. Um, you know, I, I, I came to DC, I had no real plans. I had very little money, didn't really know what I was going to do. I, I was fortunate enough to have one of my best friends who was um, interning for a, a, a DC based nonprofit. Um, she was in town and, and she's always been incredibly generous and she had no problem with me basically just sleeping on her floor for months and I sat on her floor with my with my laptop and just applied to every organization that I could think of I cold called I asked you know I did networking interviews with alums and you know just tried to set up meetings so I had something to do during the day uh and you know it was, it was sort of a sobering time um I the, the my first position out of law school was a, I was I did a fellowship with the American Constitution Society which may out me as a uh, political progressive. Um, but it was, it was, it was very, very low paid. Um, you know, <laughs> my, my, the career office at NYU, you know, they, they were very interested in, you know, the outcomes of graduates because that impacts, you know, law, law school rankings in US News and World Report. And so they always want to have X number of people employed by a certain point in time. Um, they don't really care what that employment is. Uh, and I, I will always remember when I, you know, got this offer for this fellowship and they were like, this, you shouldn't take this because it's, it's so poorly paid. Um, and, you know, I, I remember just sort of hanging up the, the call with them and being like, that's terrible advice. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather be making peanuts and at least doing something with my time than continue to sit on this floor and apply to stuff when there's no guarantee of success. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Wow. So uh, at that point in time, you uh, started looking into, you know, different news about about drones and, and counterterrorism. Talk about uh, talk about that interest. Yeah. So I didn't even. So you were asking about my experience in law school and I was really somebody that bounced around from different topics to different topics. Oh, well, I'd be interested in tax law. Would I be interested in trust and estates? And eventually, because, again, you think about this time frame, this is like 2010. Uh, we're got the surge going in Afghanistan. Um, it's crazy to think that that was already so long ago. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about just national security stuff. What is going on? Like the war on terror. Um, there was a lot of interest in like press coverage of that. So I started taking courses on media law and counterterrorism in law school. And I, I thought it was really interesting. Just, you know, there was an interesting collection of, of really tough constitutions 
constitutional questions. There were a, there was a lot of just I think big policy questions, and it you know it implicated technology, um, and so you know, when I was interviewing for a lot, you know, again, when I was on my friend's floor, I was interviewing for all sorts of organizations and I was saying basically anything to just get hired. But there was some truth to the fact that I, you know, was interested in national security issues. And so when I was at the American Constitution Society, in addition to like, you know, some of their core work on judicial nominations and some other stuff, um, I, I really tried to work on some stuff on, on some programming around national security stuff. Um, we, we actually I helped them put on a, a conference to or like an event to, to mark the 10 year anniversary of the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And so all of that raised a lot of interesting questions about, um, you know, you mentioned drones, but just new technologies. Um, you know, I, one of the things that was really eye-opening to me at that point in time is that was the year of the SOPA PIPA internet blackout. Um, and so, you know, a lot of that stuff just sort of came across my desk and at an organization that was very much focused on more core constitutional issues, they, they were, you know, they sort of gave me free reign to work on the, the, the sort of more cutting edge technical stuff. Interesting. So when did uh, privacy start to, you know, first enter uh, your mind as maybe... Uh, something that interests you. Well, you mentioned Jones. So that was something that, that caught my mind. Oh, it looks like we have a Supreme Court that is sort of like reorienting how it thinks about the Fourth Amendment. What does that mean? Um, and then, you know, I was paying it, you know, I started, I was paying attention to some other just trends that were going on. Um, 2012 was when um, the FTC started updating its rules for the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. So I was sort of paying attention to that. And I, I sort of wrapped all of that together and was somehow, and this, this gets to, I think, where our paths will eventually cross, I, I was able to, to convince um, Jules Polonetsky and Heather Fetterman at the Future of Privacy Forum that they should, you know, take a pass on giving me a, a fellowship there. Um, I was, yeah, we, I should say more. I, I was incredibly lucky. I don't think I had a, or I, I certainly at that point did not have much of a background in privacy, um, but they needed somebody who was available and interested and the timing worked out well for me. So talk about that a little bit. And that, that was already before before the GDPR. So uh, what oh, was that way before uh, the GDPR. Yeah, way before, yeah. So this was, just, this uh, was before privacy. This was in the era of the US EU safe harbor. I mean, it was a long time right. ago. Right, right. So get into that. Uh, what what were you doing there at, at FPF then? Um, so I was uh, I was I was brought on initially to, to sort of work on, and <laughs> I ended up passing this off to a colleague at FPF. But FPF had a project on exploring like um, basically de-identification. Uh, you know, I remember we were coming up with a bunch of different case studies about how information could be de-identified and and what is, and how does that then comport with um, you know, the, the FTC's privacy framework at the time. Like, I think the goal was to try and bolster that privacy framework by explaining how de-identification worked. Um, I, I worked with a, a colleague um, on a paper that he actually eventually put out that was talking about the value of both technical measures and administrative controls to bolster de-identification. Um, that, that's, yeah, that's pretty technical. I can't believe I just spent a minute talking about de-identification. Uh, the thing that I, I really sort of got to work on, though, was um, when I started at the Future Privacy Forum, um, big data was just the giant buzzword of the day. 
Um, so was the Internet of Things. I, I still remember we had a staff meeting once and I was talking about IoT and everyone's like, what do you mean IoT? So it just goes to show how these buzzwords evolve over time. Um, but my during my time at FPF, I, I organized um, this, this acad academic conference might be too strong of a word, but basically we had this partnership with the, the Stanford Law Review um, to basically collect a bunch, basically have a paperwork, not paper workshop, a call for papers on what are the sort of privacy issues involved with big data. Um, and so we worked on that with the Stanford Law Review and then ultimately put on this, this full day workshop um, with a bunch of panels on folks talking about different aspects of big data. Uh, you know, I, I was able to sort of organize a keynote with uh, Raid Ghani, who was the Obama campaign's chief data science officer at one point. So he was talking about how big data could be used in political campaigns, which, you know, now everybody's completely aware of that. But that was that was novel and stuff that people hadn't really thought about in, in 2013. Um, so, you know, I was sort of the office big data guy. Over time, that transitioned to doing a lot of work on IoT. Um, I, I worked on some stuff involving connected cars, which is a lot of which was a lot of fun. Um, you know, location data, uh, a, a wide range of stuff. Um, I also, and you know, if we keep going on my career path, I also, while I was at the Future Privacy Forum, was really active in trying to involve more of sort of consumer advocates. Um, you, you know as well as I am that future the future privacy forum is is an interesting is an interesting entity that sort of sits between I think you know think tanks, industry trade associations, um, and advocacy and civil society groups. Um, and, and so I you know I was very much while I was at FPF always trying to like bring in consumer voices um, to sort of discuss what we were working on and and, and get some of their buy in. Interesting. Now, uh, after FPF, you went uh, the, the the big law route and went to Wilmer Hill, probably with the uh, worked with a previous guest of mine, Kirk Nard. Kirk, there, Kirk so. was not there. Kirk was not at Wilmer oh, Hill right. yet. Although I do know oh, that Kirk is a great guy. Um. So then, talk about that. I guess how you ended up. Uh, how you ended up there? <laughs> oh, I still feel bad for all of the people at Wilmer Hill that that brought me on because that was it was not the best fit in life. Um. So I guess I'll, I'll blame my like millennial tendencies, but after, after about three years at the FPF, I, I just sort of felt like I need to do something different or I need to move on and what do I do now? Um, and I, <laughs> I was at a point in my life where I, I just, I, you know, I think I said earlier, I was, I was always very reluctant about being a corporate lawyer. I had serious qualms about joining a law firm I just didn't think it was a great fit and that wasn't that would that turned out to be a pretty accurate prediction um but I want you know I wanted to try something new and um by after a few years at FPF you know that that's a it's a it was a really good credential for me um and also I think we've all been the beneficiaries of the fact that the privacy profession has sort of boomed over the past 10 years um law practices were and are were just hiring people and so you know i there were a couple of law firms that i interviewed with and um ultimately selected wilmer hale um and then realized pretty quickly it just wasn't wasn't what i was good at <laughs> get into that a little you know i i think it's interesting on the sort of how law firms fit into the uh, privacy landscape and what kinds of work you're doing there and why you felt like it wasn't uh, such a good fit yeah i mean so i think 
I mean, part of it is just sort of the, the mechanics of being at law firms. I mean, you know, we'd have partners that really wanted you to have double spaced sentences. So like learning that was, you know, I had to, I had to, it took me years to then go back to not having double space sentences um, or two, two spaces after a period, because that makes no sense to me. Um, so there, you know, there are things like that that sort of were just like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm getting in trouble for not having my sentences formatted correctly. Okay. Um, I also just, you know, I, 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 maybe I'll say I was a little bit arrogant. Like I thought that my my policy background and my understanding of larger issues would be of value to the law firm. And, you know, the reality is they're focusing on compliance nuts and bolts and, um, you know, law firms and, and lawyers, like, they work on behalf of their clients. They're trying to help their, you know, their clients come to them with a question or a problem. They want to get their clients to yes. And, um, you know, when you're working in policy or you're working in advocacy, uh, you can, you, you're, you're, you're in the position to take a broader view. You're also in a position to sort of look at, at, at practices or, or things that, you know, maybe make you feel squeamish or uncomfortable and, and push back on that in a way that you're not really in a position to do at a law firm. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I wasn't good at that. I also wasn't good at the, honestly, the, uh, you know, the thing that I have really appreciated over time, sometimes, and I continue to say this, and it's it's something that you know I, I get in trouble with my, my 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 managers, my bosses, my friends, when I I sometimes I'm like I don't know what I do, I don't know what I know, um, but if I thinking back over my history, I, I do realize how much I have learned over time. And when I first went to a law firm, I I don't think I really understood how to read like self-regulatory codes or legislation or privacy laws in a way that was as rigorous and, and, and valuable as it needs to be for a lawyer. Um, and that's stuff that I, I still think I'm probably not as good at, at that as like an actual outside counsel or inside counsel or in-house counsel. Um, but I, you know, I certainly wasn't good at it at the time. And so you know, I thought I had this this policy background that was useful, but I didn't understand how to do the nuts and bolts of the job, and and so just yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a great fit. <laughs> Interesting. Now, uh, moving to the next job, you were at the uh, CDT, the Center for Democracy and Technology, for a few years. Talk about uh, talk about that experience. Oh yeah. Um, so getting a getting a, a position on at CDT at the Center for Democracy and Technology was really it was really one one of my dream jobs um, I I, uh, I always said when I when I think when I interviewed with them that I had like applied for multiple jobs with them before I had, I had applied for in, even going back to law school I had tried, applied for internships with them and just it never worked out um, but I was always a big time admirer of the work that they did and just the the scope of the stuff that they do um, and so uh, I was, I was, I was really very fortunate um, to get a, to get to get a job at CT. It's it, those types of jobs are hard to come by. Um, you know, I don't know if you're looking for some basic career advice, but I think what helped was I knew the folks there. I had done some. I, I won't say I volunteered, but you know, I I think one thing that's really important to do as you're building a career, certainly in in, in the privacy space, is to is to make connections with folks, and and that can be tough to do sometimes. Um, and, you know, and by that, I, you know, I, I had provided feedback on some of their white papers. I was always engaging with the work they had done, you know, I, you know, either saying, hey, great paper, here's some thoughts, 
um, that sort of stuff was unsolicited and might not have actually been welcome, but it showed that I was paying attention to the work that they did and, and you know, was invested in it. And so I think that that helped me get that job, I hope. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it, you know, I, I joined a, a small and growing team that was really focusing on a lot of really interesting privacy questions. Now, how did that differ from uh, FPF? Oh, well, uh, so I think the way that that has always been described, and I don't know if this is accurate, but um, at least at one point in time, and I think that this has also changed as the number of organizations that are interested in privacy has, has just exploded. But I, I always think that, that FPF sort of viewed itself as like the center right organization to CDT center left. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was very much, it was interesting when I was at CDT, it was the same wheelhouse of folks like engaging in the same with the same organizations, um, same privacy practitioners, um, but it was just coming at it from a slightly different ideological slant. Interesting. Was, which, any, which, like, which I'll say was, which was probably a little bit more comfortable for me. Yeah, yeah. Do you have anything that stuck out as like an example of that? Well, um, I don't know if this is a great example, but one thing that I was really proud to work on and, and it just goes at the different sort of models of how FPF and CDT works like FPF does a lot of work with different companies to try and, and as they say advance like responsible data practices so you know FPF does a lot of great work on on well they used to do a lot more work on sort of self-regulatory codes best practices mm -hmm. infographics um, and they I think they try to do that in partnership with with folks. CDT has a slightly different model. And so when I was at CDT, for example, um, I, we, I helped draft a, a complaint um, about some practices that a, a VPN, a, a virtual private network was making about the, the capabilities of their technology. And so, you know, we wrote a complaint, which is something that FPF would, would, would never do. Um, but to follow up on that complaint, we then, you know, wanted to sort of spin up a working group to work with VPNs and activists and civil society to, to see whether it was possible to come up with, um, you know, best practices for VPN providers. Um, and I think the way that we did that was 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 different from how FPF would do it because I think FPF wants to bring companies along with them and CET. You know, I I don't want to speak for for CET's leadership and, and their actual ethos, but I felt like CET was like, we're going to do things and we're happy if you join us, but if you don't, we're still going to move forward if we think it's a good idea. Uh, do you think that's, is that a good enough example? I mean, there, uh, yeah. there's a couple of those things. I mean. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. Now, uh, next you're at the comment, you're at uh, Common Sense Media and you're working in state advocacy. Is that when you were, um, you know, in, in different state uh, congressional hearings and uh, yes, yeah, yeah. You, can, you, you can find me, you can find um, testimony of me in any number of states. Um, well, so my, my path to common sense was a little bit weird. Uh, we, there were some um, management shifts at CDT. Uh, I always sort of described it as over time at CDT, I sort of got voluntold into being like our, this is, this, this is going to sound more important than it was, but it's almost like the state policy clearinghouse person. Um, and that was because increasingly state legislatures were really just interested in technology. They were really interested in privacy laws, um, but they would also be interested in, as we're seeing now, all sorts of like Section 230 type stuff, um, uh, you know, like other types of like 
core consumer protection things. And, and of course, you'd get a lot of interest in like law enforcement use of biometrics. Um, and so we would get these like incoming and, you know, CDT had a lot of different teams touching on this stuff. But the, I, for some reason, I became sort of the point person on this. So I started just doing a lot of like advocacy with states, um, like following some of the state bills, working, having some touch points with some state lawmakers. And, um, you know, at the time, uh, Common Sense Media was really like working on a bunch of, of, of privacy laws in California. Um, and they wanted to sort of bolster that by doing more work across the country, building out relationships with state attorneys general um, to sort of like highlight uh, the impacts of of uh, of all all the you know basically how every how how privacy how the privacy of kids in schools and every, and online is being impacted, um, and so I I took the job with like you know lobbyist being a lobbyist can sometimes be viewed as as a dirty word but I, I very much was common sense as lobbyist I registered to lobby in a number of states, um, and took the job with the expectation that, you know, I was going to be on the road meeting state lawmakers, state policymakers, sort of talking to them about our concerns. Um, and, and, you know, for the first three months that I was at Common Sense, so that's what, 12 weeks, I was I was away from home and in state capitals for like seven of those weeks. Um, so it was, it was, it was, it was, it was an interesting experience. And then, I mean, the wrinkle is then the pandemic hit, <laughs> um, which changed the scope of the job in all sorts of different ways. Interesting. Get into that. How, how did, uh, you know, were you able to zoom in or what, what did you do then? Yeah. Uh, so it actually really, it, a, it shifted the issues that were working on overnight. I mean, uh, I went from doing a lot of work on privacy to doing a lot of work on like broadband access. How do we address the digital divide? How do we get kids online? Mm -hmm. All of that type of stuff. Um, but to your point, it also, and I think there, it, it did sort of make it so that you're doing a lot more remote work. Um, and there are pros to that, but I also think that there are major cons. Uh, and I think we're, we're, you know, we're seeing that even today as, as everyone is sort of coming back to work and we're figuring out how, how people best work together. But I, I certainly thought in dealing with like lawmakers with remote access, it made it much easier and more, they were more willing to, you know, take a phone call. Um, it was easy. It became much easier for folks to testify because they opened up remote testimony as opposed to having to be in there in person. That just made it much easier to be in more states at once. Um, I, I think the the problem is with that is, and it, it, it is the same situation. You, you use the the water cooler talk type of the the analogy when dealing with lawmakers. Um, when you set up a meeting and you've got an agenda document, you're walking through that can be productive and very useful, um, but that isn't really how you're going to build relationships with lawmakers over time. Um, mm -hmm. And so, the the thing that I learned of doing this that job for two years in a remote fashion was, you still really needed to be there. Um, and, and I think that made, that made the job really hard. Interesting. Now, I think around that time also, you were, uh, uh, an adjunct professor. So <laughs> I don't know if you still are now, but, uh, get into that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that was a really interesting opportunity. And I, I don't want to overstate what I, what I did. I, I was, um, an adjunct professor with, um, Seton Hall, Seton Hall University's online law school. Um, so I basically ran a couple of online courses uh, on privacy and data security and, um, and like basically the full stack of like 
of, of technology generally and technology law. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, it was a really interesting, I mean, that was a useful experience just in the middle of the pandemic. It also, I don't think I, I realized, I don't think I was a really good teacher and it's very hard to do, again, I think it's hard to do that sort of thing remote. It's also, it made me realize, um, you know, this is, this goes back to all the lessons I've learned in college and law school. Like you're always going to have an interesting curve of folks. Um, there's a couple of people who really are both get the topic or really interested in it. There are folks that are just sort of there to, you know, get, get a, get a certificate or get the credits. And then there are people that really, really struggle. Um, and, and that I think really, I, I don't want to give, I don't, I don't want to say I've become much better because of it, but it really made me sort of have to hone and sharpen how I talk about some of this stuff because you know mm -hmm. people would people would want to understand um the the difference between the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communications Commission and their their role in policing privacy um and that becomes really secondhand nature to throw around acronyms and that's the other problem like you this is certainly the case in privacy but I think it's the case everywhere we just throw around acronyms left and right, um, and and that I, you know, and, and that's very confusing to to new people, and it makes it it makes, I think it it makes it us feel a little bit like we are in our own sort of, I don't want to say, cult. That's that's too strong of a word, but we're in our we're in this sort of rarefied air as privacy professionals. We understand this stuff, but I, as the more we do that, the the more we sort of are divorced from how this impacts real people and how real people understand this stuff. So, you know, if you want to teach privacy law to someone, yeah, you need to go through things like the GDPR, but it's also important to really give them first principles and and talk to folks about like why this stuff matters and it's it, you know, it's it is more than just setting up compliance regimes and you know legal check boxes it's it really there there's really values that underlie all of this stuff right right now let's move uh to your most recent position so you kind of have shifted a little bit away from uh strictly privacy law and are working on metaverse topics at uh at meta with with reality lab so talk about that transition to switch away a little bit from privacy and uh, to the extent you can talk about uh, you know what you've been able to do there. Well, now that now that uh, I'm uh, now that I am inside the inside uh, inside of, uh, of, a, of a big company, I'm always very sort of cautious in what I what I should be saying. But, I, you know, I will say that, like, it, it should be no surprise to anyone over the past year that, like, you know, we start I started this by talking about how nobody knew what big data or the IOT was. 10 years ago. Well, now everyone really wants to know what the metaverse is. And um, I, I've been really, really fortunate in the sense that I think a lot of my past jobs offered me the opportunity to explore um, different things. And, and I was always, I, I actually take a lot of inspiration from, from Jules Polonetsky at the Future of Privacy Forum, who's always been very good at sort of seeing around the horizon as to what is coming next. And as part of that, I was always trying to explore some interesting stuff. Like, I, you know, I was, whether it was connected cars, um, we didn't talk about, uh, you know, I, at one point I partnered with a, a couple of folks to write a paper about like video game privacy, like what are the privacy issues in video games and that, you know, because that's sort of one of my hobbies and interests outside of work. Um, so I've always sort of been following some of this stuff. And, you know, it really was a couple of years ago now. Um, I mean, for people who've been in this space for a long time, you know, 
augmented or virtual reality goes back to virtual boys in in uh, the mid 1990s. Um, but a couple of years ago, I was really, you know, just sort of interested in all of this stuff and started um, started just reading up more about it, writing about it, talking about it. Um, you know, uh, in, a, in a past life, I while at Common Sense, I, I partnered with the Future of Privacy Forum on a, on a paper that explored just sort of privacy issues and augmented reality and virtual reality. Uh, and, and so like the long and short of it is when the opportunity came to like, actually like work on that stuff in a company, um, you know, of course I had to apply. Interesting. Uh, so now uh, with a couple of my last questions, what's, uh, what's next for you? What do you have in mind? So I have as my as my ping ponging around DC over the past ten years has shown me over and over again. I have really given up on having five year plans. Um, I think some people are very good at like here's the thing I want to accomplish in my life. Um, <laughs> I I really don't know. I do not know what's next. Uh, I, I let's let's do something that's. 10,000 foot up and, and aspirational. I want to keep learning about interesting stuff and to the extent I'm possible, find opportunities to write about it, um, whether that is publicly, whether that is internally. Um, you know, I, I have found that my, my learning process has really been, I get interested about all sorts of random topics and the way that I really process my interest is by writing it down in some way. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I, my, my future is hopefully doing more of that and finding more interesting things to work on. Um, that is a, that is a generic answer, but I actually think that that, that is the best answer I can give you. Yeah. Unless, yeah. unless we get into a situation where, um, and this is, you know, this gets into back into like the realm of policy where, um, we see, you know, we see the U S Congress pass a privacy law or, or, you know, or we, we deal with, you know, the heat death of the universe and, um, you know, rampant climate change. And that just really sort of causes a complete uh, cataclysmic collapse of our society. But that's uh, probably a bit too negative to end on. Now, um, on the writing front, what's your sort of intended audiences uh, when you when you write? I think it depends. Um, I actually think so. I don't know. I don't know if, the, if you are looking for career advice. But I think learning to, to write for different audiences is really, really important. Um, my, my, my current partner actually teaches um, journalism and is, and is always dealing with like students that really want to write these like op-ed-y, angry position papers. And, you know, she has to bring them back because that's not the purpose of journalism. It's supposed to be more objective and more balanced, more fact-based. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I think... I think writing can take on so many different forms. I mean, for me, sometimes it's just literally angry rants. Here's a couple of ideas of things I'm thinking about. Let's just put it down on paper. Uh, and I think from there, you can either turn it into more fact-based things, um, either based on you know the, fa the, the facts of the technology or the facts of the law. Um, you can do an analysis of you know where things stand out in the court of public opinion. Um, but you know, you also you can also you also want to have for me for different audiences. You need to have a call to action, um, and I think that's something I'm always trying to get better at. And you know, again, we're talking about privacy. I think a calls to action around privacy are really really difficult. Um, 
I, I was able to write a, a number of different op-eds in my, in my past roles where I was trying to get people to understand like the importance of privacy. Um, but privacy means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, it means a lot of different things to me. Um, and so becoming more crisp and clear about like what the under, what our underlying values are and what we're trying to communicate are, are is really, really important. Um, mm -hmm. And again, that just goes back to my notion that it really is more than a bunch of acronyms. Yeah, yeah, well said. Now, my last question for you for folks thinking about uh, how they can how they uh, can become the next Joe Jerome, what, uh, you know, what things have you done that have really <laughs> propelled you uh, to get to where you are? Um, just get angry and passionate about stuff. Uh, so, you know, I think it really depends on where where you are. So, again, I am I'm a, I'm a citizen. I am a swamp creature of DC as the as the, the past president might say. Um, and I think what comes along with that is understanding the importance of networking, which doesn't is not my strong suit. So I remember, I will always be very thankful when I first started at the Future of Privacy Forum, um, Heather Fetterman, who you, you might wanna interview at some point, she's currently the Chief Privacy Officer at Big ID. She took me to a, a, a sort of a, a happy hour that was being hosted by Ashkan Sultani, who is now currently the, um, the you know, the head of the, well, I believe the executive director at the California Privacy Protection Agency. So this was a happy hour full of all of these people that I didn't know. It was very early in my, my tenure at, at FPF. And I, I found it very intimidating. Um, but I, you know, I came up with a rule that I was going to like give away my business card to two people. I was going to collect two business cards and I was going to go randomly talk to someone. So I, you know, ever since then, whether it's conferences, events, whatever, I, you know, I, I go talk to one random person, oftentimes just the, the random awkward person in the corner, because they're also like, what am I doing here? And they might be equally interesting. And by doing that, you sort of build a, to use a madman expression, a or, or, you know, a Rolodex of contacts that sort of, or of contacts that know who you are and what you're interested in. And I think that's invaluable in a place like Washington, D.C., but I think it's invaluable everywhere, particularly in the privacy community, which is why, um, you know, sometimes I get very frustrated at, like, at, at organizations like the IAPP, you know, like having to get certifications and spending all this money for stuff like that. But going to those conferences and knowledge nets are really invaluable ways just to sort of get out there. Um, and, and so that, that's, that's been really invaluable to me, just like doing that. And then the other generic thing that I always say is write and speak about stuff. Um, you know, there is value, even if you're a junior associate at a law firm from doing client alerts, you probably don't get billable hours for them. Um, but being able to have your name on stuff is really useful. And while you're in law school or not even just law school, whether, you know, whether you're an undergrad, whether you're getting a master's, whether you're just interested and you've got a day job, um, writing about stuff helps is the fastest way to express an interest in it. Um, and in privacy, there's, you know, I, I always, I always think it's really fat. One, I'll, I'll leave with one anecdote that has always stuck with me. I was working on a project at the Center for Democracy and Technology and I was talking to a person at a, at, a, at a company who had just finished a master's thesis, basically exploring um, smart toys. And I, I was like, can you share that with me immediately? And their first response was, 
uh, it's terrible. It's not, it's not a good, you know, I don't even know if I want to turn it into an, a public article. And my immediate response was, you now know more about this topic than anyone else in my, in, in, in this world, including me. And even if your writing is terrible, your argument's bad, you would probably have citations that I can use more resources I can go find. And that, that alone is incredibly invaluable. Um, and when, when the person finally did ship over their, their master's thesis, I was like, this is great. It's phenomenal. And that's putting aside whether I even agreed with the thesis of it. Um, it was still an incredibly valuable piece of work. Um, and and I think that translates wherever you are. If you can write or talk about something that you're passionate about, um, I think that opens doors. It takes a long time. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's, nothing's guaranteed. Um, and certainly I think it can be hard to break into privacy. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to folks in, I'm from Iowa, you know, trying to figure out how you break into privacy in Iowa. And, you know, I guess you could, you could go do the, be in the privacy office at, at, at John Deere or any other sorts of companies, but, you know, you gotta, I'm rambling here a little bit, but you gotta sort of figure out what type of privacy you want to do and where you want to do it. But there's, there's opportunities everywhere. Mm -hmm. Well said. So, uh, I'll finish off by reading uh, the little rhyme again. So, Joe Jerome's legal interests began with the West Wing, so how did privacy law become his thing? Joe started following news about drones, and he became interested in privacy after U.S. v. Jones. So uh, with that, Joe, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. All right. Great.